Good morning, Hope. My name is Mike Lindstrom, and I'll be reading the text uh, scriptures today found in 1 Samuel 29 and 30. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, Send the men back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done, asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Akish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early, along with your master servants who have come with you, and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons' daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one... <clears throat> Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men went with him to the Besser Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the, of the Carathites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? 
He answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David found them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away, except 400 men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and were left behind at the Besser Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder of the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, and Jeter, to those in Eror, Sitmoth, Eshthamoah, and Rakal, to those in the towns of the Jeremelite and the Kenites, to those in Hormah, Bor, Ashen, Athak, and Hebron, and to those in all the other places where he and his men had roamed. Hey, let me uh, encourage you, if I may for a moment, pastorally, to consider how you and your family will be involved in Holy Week, which is coming up. The first week of April is Holy Week. We will celebrate Palm Sunday, that first Sunday in April, April 2nd. It'll be a regular Sunday, growth hour, and everything will be the same. And then that following weekend... Not only do we have Easter services on that Sunday the 9th, the services will be the same service time, but there will not be the normal growth hour in between, which is what we normally do on those big Christian holidays to create space for the other activities. But again, the centrality of gathering together on Easter. But I want to remind you that the Friday before is Good Friday. and We do a, a somber, reflective, but significant service. Uh, at 6.30 on Friday, April 7, want to encourage you, and encourage you with family to have your children here. Significant time to be reflecting together, to them to watch and think about the death of Christ as they prepare to celebrate the resurrection just two days later. The service is not long. I mean, there, there, there'll be some, some nursery, but again, I could see even young kids watching and participating in a 45-ish minute service, and as we've done now for several years, we'll partake in the Lord's Supper together, which is just a, a moment to reflect on the body of Christ, which is, what, which is what a Good Friday service is supposed to do. So if I may pastorally encourage you to participate in Holy Week in, that, in those capacities, hear me doing that right now. I encourage you to be part of that. As we turn to these two chapters in 1 Samuel, let me pray for us. 
Father, we love You. And we thank You that You are such a good God. And we gather this morning another Sunday to hear from Your Word and we want You to form us and to shape us, to train us, maybe rebuke us, maybe encourage us. Lord, I'm so thankful that Your Spirit ministers to each of us in our own lives and situations. Thank You that You are that kind of a God who beyond our capacity can love each of us can, can, and care for each of us and, and work through us in ways that we could never have fathomed. So work in our hearts, Father, through Your Word. Help us to receive it and to respond appropriately, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question that Paul asks of the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? I mean, even if you say, well, I mean, I work hard. You did, but what made your back strong? Or your brain quick to think and learn? Or your heart, even, to sustain? All those little details of connections. How many things did the Lord Himself have to provide for you? Things that you take for granted. That some of our brothers and sisters may lose. Like the use of a leg. Or sight in your eyes. Or ability to feel with your hands. We've noticed with my wife dealing with ALS, the slow atrophy of her muscles. And that is a humbling thing to embrace your finitude. It is horrible. Things that you could do with ease. You wouldn't even think about it even being anything at all. You no longer can do. How could you work if you didn't have a right arm? Or you couldn't walk upstairs and carry something. Again, we, we might just live our total life and not think anything of it, but those are all gifts from the Lord. And yet we, in our pride, naivete, kind of self-focus, we, 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 can, we, can earn, we feel like we've earned something, we, we own something, this belongs to us. And you can just hear Paul in Corinthians say, so what do you have that you did not receive? Well, this is an interesting text, and we covered a lot of verses, and I hope you caught the story. If you remember when we were in 1 Samuel earlier, just a couple weeks ago, David got himself in a bind where he decided he was not going to trust God, he was going to leave Israel, he's going to go to the enemy of God's people and basically commit himself to indentured servitude to that king. And he was in a bind because now that people is going to attack Israel. And in, in 1 Samuel 29, that, that's exactly what he's supposed to do. Yet in the grace of God, the people themselves, the, the Philistines, don't want to have David in there. They're like, we don't trust this guy. We don't trust him at all. Get rid of him. So David gets out of that. God graciously gets him out. And then David responds 
returning some of the honor he had lost by pursuing down what these Philistines had destroyed and gaining back not only his own family, but the family of his men and the families of many Israelites. Because as if you notice in verse 30, uh, they captured women and everyone else, young and old. They didn't kill them. They carried them off as plunder. You're not, maybe not used to that word, but that was the ancient way of it worked in ancient battles. Whoever won got the spoil. Everything. The men, if you kept them alive, were slaves. The children were slaves. The women were slaves. All the possessions belonged to them. Take it all. Do with it what you want. And that had happened to God's own people. And David pursues, gains that plunder back, and now that plunder is his. And like most stories in the Bible, at least a lot of them, the point of the story actually comes at the end. It's in verses 21 through 30. I'm going to read it again so we can see it. If you remember that David had, had 600 men, two of them, 200 of them were too exhausted to go into battle to chase down, to regain the people. So he and 400 went, they gather all the plunder, then they come back to the 200. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Besor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. And as David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. Note verse 22 in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. But all the evil men and troublemakers... By the way, the Bible sometimes tells you exactly what you're supposed to be interpreting. It's not any question. If you were like, I wonder if what they're about to say is a good statement. The Bible say, no, no, those are evil guys and troublemakers. So let me tell you who they are and then put their statement in context. The evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said... Because they, the 200, who were too exhausted to go to battle, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. Now again, you and I are thinking, that sounds kind of fair. If Tom didn't go to work and I got to work, why would I go back and give some of my paycheck to him? The guy's at home watching Oprah. Because he was too tired. I'm not giving him something. I mean, again, in our mind, that sounds logical. But then you get this verse 23. That's going to smack us in the face. No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. And verse 23 is a shocking statement. And I want to reflect on that with you today. The first thing we can see from that verse is this. That here would be a principle we can derive from that text. Everything we have comes to us from the providence of God. Now again, that is not the way the secular mind thinks. That is not the way left to our own devices, we would think. In fact, to be honest with you, the educated sitting here, paying your mortgage and rent, right, like raising your families, you probably feel pretty good. And you should because you have arguably been faithful. 
Just like those 400 men took on a whole lot of other men, they were exhausted too. They were valiant in battle. They gained back their wives and children. All this plunder, they should feel some level of success. In fact, they wanted to take that success and apply it all to themselves. And David says, no, brothers. No, you must not do that with, and here's where God becomes part of the equation, with what the Lord has given us. And again, you could see some pushback. Well, I didn't see the Lord fighting. That was me and my sword. And me and my tired legs running. And me and my military strategy directing and leading. That's not how David interpreted the same event. Nor how Scripture does. Because the end of verse 23 says, He, God, has protected us and delivered us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. The Bible is teaching us here how to see the world, brothers and sisters. Please hear this. It's teaching you how to see the world. How to see everything you have. And every instinct in you is to claim for yourself. That is is the inward bent of sin. The inward bent of sin is that you will want to take pride and put it on you. And the grace of the gospel is that you will actually see that everything you have, the very fact that your ears are working right now is by the grace of God. That your eyes are working right now is by the total grace of God. That your hands can hold this paper is by the grace. I mean, should we just keep doing a list? That your heart is beating right now is by the grace of God. That your legs could get up and work, some of us better than others, is by the total grace of God. Like all of those things are by the grace of God. A million things, things we wouldn't even fathom are by the grace of God. And if you let all of that sink in, you would be so underwhelmed with you and overwhelmed with God. Yet what we mistakenly do is we block all of the things that are absolute grace and provision of God and we begin to claim those and attach those to ourselves like Boy Scout badges. Walk around proudly with all our accomplishments. Yet if one thing had not worked, like your eyes, if one thing had gone different, like a resource you had when you were a young adult to provide for you to go to college, or your legs stopped working, or imagine trying to make breakfast this morning without any hands, how successful would you have been at making breakfast this morning? What do you have that you did not receive? Your job, your body, your wealth, your health, your smarts, people in your lives. How many gifts, common grace gifts, gifts that you couldn't earn, did you receive that come from the Lord? I went to school, Rockford Christian, and then even from Guilford High School and even college at Trinity with a guy named Randy. We grew up together at First Free. Randy, Randy and I were total opposites. I was this big, strong, athletic kid. Randy walked with a cane in high school. His chest was like indented. He had serious 
heart issues and other issues with his body. In fact, he just died five years ago at the age of 44. He was a great ahead of me. He could never play sports. He could never even play PE. He would get picked on by the kids. And I was one of those anti-bully kids when I was a kid. And I basically said to several boys, you mess with Randy, you mess with me. Plain and simple. Drove me crazy. He was the sweetest kid on the planet. You won't find a better man. But he couldn't carry a box up a set of stairs or help you move your couch. And even at an academic level, he could struggle. He used to be so envious of the kids playing sports. I remember him at high school coming to a football game with his cane. How many high school kids come to a football game with a cane? He'd stand there by the fence, and I'd come over at the end of the game, and he'd tell me what I did right and sometimes what I did wrong, but I'd just listen. All right, Randy. And he'd say, you hit him for me. I said, okay. You hit him for me. I'll hit him for you, Randy. And we got to college, and he wanted to be a pastor so bad. But to take the pastoral track, you had to do this thing called Greek. And his brain could not get the language. And I would get together with him every Tuesday and Thursday night, and we would work on the basics of Greek. He took the class three times, and he failed every single time. And I'll never forget, it was his sophomore year, I was a fresh, or junior year, I was a sophomore, and he was in his third round of Greek, and it wasn't going well. And I could not understand how he could not get these ideas in his mind, because it didn't work that difficultly for me. My brain could pick up the things and respond. He could not. And at one point, he got very teary-eyed as I came to study with him in his dorm room, and he said, we're not going to study tonight, Mickey, because I'm dropping the major. And I said, what? I said, Randy, don't give up. And he sat me down and said, let me tell you. He says, we all have to accept our limitations. Here was a 21-year-old man, right, who had had limitations his whole life physically, who just wanted to serve the Lord. But he knew he could never go on to seminary. He could never handle academically this. And this is what he said to me. And I'll never forget. He sat me. I was 20 years old. I'm sitting across from this little table with Randy, and he looks at me and he says, here's the deal. You, when you do your studying, you remember you're doing it for Randy. Well, even though I was only 20, I was, I mean, that was kind of like a charge. Like, I felt that. Because it wasn't hard for me. And I remember that when I graduated. And I remember that when I went to seminary. And I remember that when I was in St. Andrews. And when I finished my commentary, I sent him a copy and said, I think this is half yours. But what did I do different than Randy? Nothing. What did I do different than Randy? Honestly, he studied harder than I did. Why? In God's mysterious providence, my brain worked so well with God's languages he wrote his word in. I don't know why, but I could memorize it. I understood how the verbs connected to adverbs, to adjectives, to participles, to gerunds. I liked it even. I'm weird that way. Don't ask me to check your oil before in the parking lot, but if you got a grammar question, let's talk. 
But why not Randy? Lord, you already took away his legs. You gave him organ issues. He only made it to his 44th birthday. He's already gone. And I remember sitting at a free church in McHenry five years ago, sitting there, weeping in, the, in that audience, thinking about this young man who was so vibrant for life, but was always so weak and frail. The end of his life, he was wheelchair-bound, and from his late 30s on, he was in a wheelchair. From his late 30s on, in a wheelchair? So again, I hear Paul's question, what do you have that you did not receive? And I just, do I hear that? What belongs to me? What can I say? Well, that was my doing. I formed myself in my mother's room, did I? I can take credit for that? No. Then why do I take credit for everything else? So hear the word of David now in verse 23. No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. Like, if everything comes from the providential gift and grace of God, then everything owes its debt to God. That should do two things to us. It should humble us before our God. Who are we before God? What does the clay say to the potter? I'm pretty impressive, aren't I? I mean, it's, we get it in theory, but in practice, brothers and sisters, we live as if we've forgotten who we really are. It not only should humble us before God, but it should separate us from God's gifts to us. There, but there's the hard part. Right? It's not only humbles us before God, but it should separate us from God's gifts to us. They aren't fully ours. What do we own before God? The second thing verse 23 teaches us is that since everything comes from God, then we are responsible before God with it. Look at the first part of that, verse 23. You must not do that with what the Lord has given us. Again, David assumes that there is an expectation. There is a rule. The soldiers who fought think it unfair that they have to share the plunder with those who didn't fight. And again, at a human level, when I work and he didn't work, that makes sense. But you add God into the equation. You realize there's a bit more of a regulation applied to the Christian. If you think that is unfair, let me ask you a question. What ruler measures fairness? Yours? Who gets to define fair? You? What's fair between me and Randy? Clearly, David assumes, and the text makes this clear, that since God is the one who gives, then God must be part of the equation of what we do with what we have. Let me say that again. The text is assuming that since God is the one who gives, then God must be part of the equation of what we do with what we have. That's a major claim on us. 
Since everything we have comes from God, then everything we have must be managed in accordance with God's standards. This means that there are expectations on us from God in regard to our things. I, I personally felt that with Randy. If I would get tired or feel overwhelmed in my studies in future years, I would think of that 21-year-old young man charging me as a 20-year-old that I'd better get to work. If I felt that from Randy, I felt like it didn't, I didn't fully own it. I was doing this for two. If I felt that, how much more should I feel when actually Randy didn't give me anything? He just gave me perspective on what I already had. But the one who gave me everything, big or small, he actually can make a claim on everything I have. That phrase in verse 20, the beginning of 23, is stark. You must not do that with what the Lord has given us. Before jumping to specific applications, let that sink in a minute. God has expectations for you regarding the things He's given you. Get your force fields dropped because there's no argument against this. Because again, as Paul would say, what do you have that you didn't receive? Oh, you're, oh, you're good at your job? Great. Who gave you the brains? What happened if you couldn't speak or see? or you couldn't remember what you did yesterday, the next day, how, would, how, how successful would you be at your job? Oh, you're mechanical? What if you had no fingers? They just didn't work. What if your legs stopped working? What if you couldn't see? How easy would your job be if you just couldn't even see? Yet those are things you and I just assume. We assume maybe, maybe out in the world, but not God's church. We don't just assume that we can see and it's just, that's normal. No, it's, it's common grace. It's grace. It's grace. And the word grace is the same root for the word gift. So common grace means God is gifting all the time. That tomorrow you go to work and your brain will work the same as it did on Friday. And your hands will work and your legs will work and your back will work. And if it doesn't, here's the thing, you get frustrated. Rather than saying, well, I've had 45 years of a good working hands, no biggie. You assume it should continue working as if it wasn't a gift. God has expectations for you regarding you and your money and your home and your possessions, your property. But here's my worry. Here's my worry. Here's my pastoral concern. Have we, that's all of us in an American, Western, modern world, have we let secular notions of ownership and private property disciple our use of money and possessions more than Scripture? Like, have we been discipled by God and Scripture in regard to our things? Or have we been discipled in regard to culture? Because you listen to Remember verse 22? The Bible calls them evil men who are troublemakers. They were totally discipled by the regular practices in the world. 
When you take plunder and you earned it, you get a share. Full stop. And David's like, you've left God out of the equation. Troublemakers and evildoers. Like you're thinking like a secular person. Someone who is like, doesn't submit themselves to the creator of the universe and the savior of their lives. You, you have just thought like everybody else, but a Christian doesn't have that. Like we're triangulating the world and our lives with our God. And when we include God in the equation and we actually look at for from him and through him and to him are all things, all of a sudden our hands can't clench anymore. They just start to loosen because we know that we are held in the same generous giving hands of our Lord. So have you and have I let secular notions of ownership and private property disciple our use of money and possessions more than Scripture? And if you don't think, well, I don't know if that's a big concern. Well, Jesus, brothers and sisters, talked more about that. He talked more about money than he talked about heaven. Think about that for a second. Or how about this statement in Matthew 6.24, Jesus' warning his church. He says, no one can serve two masters. These are Jesus' words. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, it'd be one thing if we weren't living in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. But you can only imagine how strong and true those words would be preached by Jesus if he were ministering in America today. Which, by the way, through his church, he is. And through his spirit, he is. What do you think he'd be concerned about? What's the first thing he would say? If you aren't careful, you are so wealthy. Compared to the Christians around the world, you live like kings and queens. Think about that. Compared to Christians around the world, you are like royalty. Your only comparison is like quarterbacks in the NFL. They're like, well, I wish I had as much money as Aaron Rodgers. Like, no, that's not the comparison. Comparatively to other people around the world and to your brothers and sisters around the planet, you are literally millionaires, all of you. You rarely ever think about where the next meal is going to come from. Do you know how rare that is? Again, we just assume that. And then we want more, the nicer car, or the bigger house, or the better trip. So you can imagine Jesus coming in and saying, hey, well, you think he's going to talk about your governor first? Or your president? Or he's going to be worried about some political thing? He's going to say, brothers, this is your heart. Have you been discipled more by money and your wealth? In my scripture, because you cannot serve both God and money. So here's the last thing I want to note from this text, and then we'll close. And it's in verse 25. After that statement in verse 23, down in verse 25, the text says this David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. Now that statement in verse 25 in chapter 30 is actually quite rare. The narrator rarely speaks that forthrightly in the Old Testament. Like, this is unique. 
Like you just saw a unicorn run across the page kind of thing. Like that's rare. This means that this statement is making clear the importance of what this passage teaches. With this clear language in verse 25, the Bible is making this a law for us to obey as well. Notice it said, from that day to this. Scripture establishes a Christian view of our possessions as a law to be obeyed. So how obedient are you to this law? We could ask that question in regard to posture and practice. How about posture first? Do you view your money and possessions as from the Lord? Do you? I mean, again, not just in theory, but do you, but do you, do you even see that? Like maybe this morning, you just, you just hadn't thought about everything you have and everything that you can do is a total gift. Because according to God's providence, all that could end tomorrow. Your heart stops, it's done. You're probably not going to work. Your legs, your arms, economy, whatever, it, boop, it can just be gone, gone. And what are you going to do to get it back? Can you fix the problem? So do you even see this truth? That everything you have is from the Lord. But second, do you actually act on that truth? Do you treat your money and possessions differently because they are from the Lord? Like, do you, do you look any different than your neighbor who's total pagan? Is there any difference? Again, note how the text ends, end of 30. David's generosity, right? Verse 26, when he reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. And then 27 through 30, it is describing how he's sharing the plunder all to God's people. He's just sharing it because they're God's people. And who is the giver of the plunder? God is. Again, immediately our minds, brothers and sisters, are feeling that catechetical challenge because you're so used to private property, ownership, and possessions that are literally part of our Constitution Bill of Rights. And we don't know what to do with this. Well, maybe, maybe a couple things. How might you apply this? First, open your eyes. If this doesn't happen, the other two won't. Open your eyes. Everything you have comes from God. Every time or regularly when I am doing something in studies, I'll have that image in my mind of Randy sitting across that table. When I, that, that's coming on 28 years ago this fall is when he sat there with me and said to me, hey, you need to study hard. You're studying for me. I think of Randy. I want to think more than Randy. I want to see that everything comes from the providence of God. It's just not mine. I want to open my heart that there are people around you with whom you should share God's good gifts. Because it's not yours. They're God's. Just like David. 
spreading around the plunder of the Lord to all these people, who, by the way, none of them came to battle. And third, open your hands. Obediently give a share of your money and possessions to the Lord. I've always been leery of talking about money, and in fact, I've shared this with you before. I think my first few years here, I, I almost never brought it up. And I... I felt a mild rebuke from God's Word for doing that. And thankfully, with expository preaching, I don't have to do a sermon series on giving and generosity. I can just go through 1 Samuel, and I wasn't even thinking about this text at all in regard to giving, and came upon this text and say, that's where the text ends. That, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the climactic ending of the text, is generosity and giving. It's the Lord's. I, I don't have to come up with a series. I, 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 will, I will not be afraid as a pastor to talk about money. I will be afraid as a pastor not to talk about money. Because if it's true what Jesus said, and it is, that you cannot serve both God and money, if I am not helping to proclaim that for your life and for mine, then we're not being faithful disciples. So one simple act of obedience that you can begin to do differently is to give to the Lord directly through His church. I have no idea what any of you give. Zippo. None. So I can speak about this freely. But I do know that after my study this week in this sermon, I looked at what I gave and made an adjustment. I don't know what you give. That's not my concern. But my concern would be that you are seeing that everything you have belongs to whom? And everything you have comes from whom? So that everything you do with everything you have includes God in the equation. And I'll never know how any of you besides me responds to this message from God's Word. But I have to, as a pastor, say, guard your hearts. Protect yourselves from being catechized by the things of this world. You will be threatened. You will be forced. You will feel the pressure to serve the God of money. And the God of money runs our country. It runs our school district. It runs our businesses. It runs our TV channels. It runs our media. It runs everything. It should not run your life. Because you can't serve two masters. For the Lord is the giver of everything. That same Apostle Paul, I've quoted a few times, says so beautifully when he finishes summarizing the Gospel, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we just learned that everything is from Him. And everything is through Him. And our response is to give everything to Him. Let's pray. Father, You are such a good God. And help us to have hearts that are softened to hear the truth of Your Word and the Gospel. Now help us just to see, maybe that's that first step, for all of us to see that everything comes from You. 
Father, our hearts are so selfish. We, we, we put our security in the things we can control. And money is a railing. It's a parachute. We, we devote ourselves to those things. Father, help us to see that everything comes from You and to see that You must be part of the equation of our money and our possessions. Father, what we just preached this morning is heresy to our world. But to the church, it is a symptom of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Do that work among us, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.